0: I told you before, I kind of went into this all because I had wanted to go and work overseas and, you know, save starving children and all that kind of stuff. And uh, after I was in nursing and met my husband and got married and all of the things around life got in the way and it just never seemed like a good opportunity. Life's complicated. Yeah. It was New Year's Eve and and I was making my New Year's resolution. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do something about that this year. So, New Year's Day, I applied to go to QSO, which is uh, volunteer services overseas. I put in an application to leave my job at Deloitte to go volunteer. This might be the, the one example of a successful New Year's resolution
1: <laughs> that I've heard. <laughs> it was,
0: it was. Really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so wow. New Year's Day, put in my application. I think it was like the 3rd of December or January. They phoned me and was accepted that year. And wound up uh, later on that same year going to Sierra Leone. Oh, that was fast.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is Aid Evolved, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. We'll be hearing firsthand accounts of people who are trying to fight poverty or improve healthcare and thinking maybe technology can help us do that better. Along the way, I hope we can learn a thing or two that'll help those of us striving to make some change. In this world. Today we'll be speaking with Liz Peloso. Liz has spent over 30 years working in healthcare. That breaks down to roughly a decade working as a registered nurse in Canada, another decade as a senior consultant in the private sector working on digital transformation in the healthcare sector, and finally a third decade in global health leading major international programs. Most recently, she was the director of the Better Immunization Data Initiative from the Gates Foundation, a multi-million dollar program spanning multiple countries in sub-Saharan Africa. There really aren't that many people that have experienced all the different sides of digital health the way Liz has. As we go through the different chapters of Liz's life, I'd encourage you to pay attention to the insights and the observations that she brings with her unique combination of perspectives. She talks about the things she hated about software when she was working in the intensive care unit. And then she joins the technologists and shares the specific things that she tried to do better, whether she was working with CIOs in the United States or a tiny clinic in post-tsunami Indonesia. We start off with Liz and the story of where she came from and how she grew up.
0: I grew up with two younger brothers in, uh, in Ontario and in Canada. We moved around a lot when I was first growing up. I only went to the same school for two years once in my whole life. Oh, wow. I, I think I went to three different kindergartens. Ooh, you are used to change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, some people handle it better than others. And yes, we, we moved around very often, uh, mostly around Ontario, just for my dad's work. And I never really knew what I wanted to do or wanted to be. Uh, I had, huh. I didn't have a good... Trajectory, and the one thing I had known all along is that I really wanted to try to, you know, save the world. And and you saw these pictures of those starving kids and all of this kind of thing. And I I really thought I wanted to change the world, but I didn't really know how. And it came close to the end of high school, and the guidance counselors would call my parents in and say, "She needs to do something." (laughs) And 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 I said, "Well, I
1: mean, I don't know." It's tough figuring out how to save the world. I think some of us are still trying to figure that out.
0: I know. I know. And uh, so I said, well, how about nursing? And that, that was a perfectly acceptable solution. So I applied. I was actually the youngest person that they, my school had ever admitted. I That was back when they had colleges wow. too. That part was a little bit challenging only because I was a fair bit younger than everybody else. Actually, the biggest problem was I wasn't old enough to drink until I graduated <laughs> from nursing school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So I as a result I was pretty young and I guess naive and really felt I yes, yeah, the reason I went into nursing was because I thought, well, if I'm gonna go and save people, I better have some good skills to do that and that seemed like a reasonable skill to have at the time. Absolutely. And so uh so I did and, and shortly after I started working and uh my first job was uh, in a neonatal intensive care unit um, at Women's College Hospital.
1: Wow, that sounds rather intense for a first job.
0: Yeah, actually, I wound up working there for a while and in a variety of different jobs. I liked the challenge of it all. I, I, at one point, mm-hmm. I job shared three different jobs. I worked in the neonatal ICU, I worked in uh, mm-hmm. a, a pediatric trauma unit, and I worked in an adult ICU and labor oh, and labor oh. and delivery. Huh.
1: That sounds exhausting. I'll be
0: honest. Yeah, the only difficulty is that you have a lot of additional skills that you have to learn and get certified for, and Mm -hmm. uh, you have to work enough to maintain them. Uh, But anyway, it it was very interesting, and I really, really enjoyed the challenge of you know new things and learning new things.
1: Yeah, I can, I can imagine a lot of very practical day-to-day clinical skills that you would need to maintain, and -hmm. that's one of the things that I find fascinating about you, Liz, is that. Unlike many of the folks who end up working in digital health, like myself, um, you have that, you know, real world firsthand experience in the clinical setting, you know, from the the first day of your full time job, uh, you were you were seeing children in the in the ICU. And that must have given you a certain perspective that informed your future work in in global health. Well, we'll come back to this. But I'm just curious, from your, your time wandering around actually working in that clinical setting, what were some of your takeaways or some of the skills that you picked up that later became essential to you on the digital health side? Or, or maybe another way of asking the same question is, do you have any pet peeves or missed opportunities hmm. that you're able to see because of your clinical
0: background? Well, I think so. It, it, and especially, specifically at the technology side of things. It, hmm. it, it occurred to me when I worked in the neonatal ICU, we, we, um, I, that was back in the day when our Labs and everything were still all done on paper, and you you know take the blood from your on your baby, you'd send it to the lab, and they'd phone up, and the ward clerk would walk write it in her book and walk over and tell you out loud what your lab results were, and it would be followed up with paper later on. And uh, they decided that they would put in the lab system, uh, and this <laughs> labs this lab system meant that uh, we could now log in online and find out what the results were so that there would not be the transcription errors and all of this sort of thing.
1: Right. And you were the user that had to use the system the first time
0: around. I was. How'd that go? It was horrible. Awful. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Do tell. Well, the the flow, it, it made me realize that the people who set this up have got no idea what I do for a living. They really did not understand <laughs> what it was like to be that this nurse. Now, if you can imagine, we had it, at the time. I know it's been redesigned subsequently, but we had two giant rooms with beams that came down from the ceiling around which four isolates sat, plugged in with their oxygen and all the ventilators and everything. So you could literally not mm. put your arms out on either side of you and turn around without touching something. Very, very crowded, and we would often have twenty or more nurses working on a shift and down the the middle oh. in between these large two, these two large rooms was a, a a sort of narrow nursing station that had glass looking out onto both sides and they put one computer in there <laughs> oh now, no in order for me to leave my baby's side i would have to Ask somebody, I'm going to go check my lab results. Could you please watch my baby just in case something happens? And then I go over, mm. I have to wash my hands, I have to log in. Now, I didn't take typing in school because I wasn't going to be a secretary or anything like that. And that's how that worked back then. I never took typing mm. or whatever. So I hunt and peck keystrokes to get into the computer. I find my baby's name, I look it up. Oh, my lab results are not available yet. Okay, I go back mm. and then you know, wash my hands again, go back and repeat process in five minutes. Cause there's, you know, also every nurse is doing the same thing. And yeah. I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm now waiting 15 minutes to find out, uh, 15 minutes or 20 minutes longer because I don't want to go and check and have find it's not there.
1: Right. And that's 15 minutes that you want to spend by your baby's side, you know, that you want to yeah. spend doing the work that you're, you're hired to do not looking up something in a medical record system.
0: Exactly. That's when I, I realized they don't know, understand what I'm doing. And I, <laughs> I, I approached. I said, "Can I talk to the people who developed this?" <laughs> and they said, and I had a little meeting with them. And I said, oh, "Boy, I, I don't think you're getting how this works for me <laughs> and why this isn't working out." And
1: and I wish I could be there to see that you give them a piece of your mind.
0: <laughs> well, no, it wasn't so much that I was angry. It was that I was. I honestly thought you're a developer, you don't understand what I do. So anyway. <laughs> that's fair.
1: Although I, I wonder if, if our users got angry at us more, and, and maybe users isn't the wrong word, you know, our uh, our beneficiaries, the folks you are trying to serve, if they got angry at us more and said, hey, the work I'm doing is, is really important and you're making it harder, maybe that would, that would help. You know, I think sometimes this industry needs a, a kick in the pants mm-hmm. from people with experience like the one that you have. I, I think
0: that's exactly the case. And that maybe instead of that... In global development, they wouldn't get so angry with you as much as they would say they would just not do it, right? They would just, right. yeah, yeah, I'm trying, and turn out not to actually do it.
1: Also in in Zambia, just because of the the etiquette and the politeness there. Exactly.
0: Anyway, that was one of the things that that made me realize that there's there's something else to this. That there there was a need for people to understand both sides sides of that coin, both the technology and how people used it, and so it was right. after that that I decided to go back to university, misguidedly, and do a degree in computer science.
1: Interesting. Wait, a few a few things there. One is you say it was misguided, uh-huh. which I want to hear more about. And and two, it sounds like this wasn't just you know a, a passing annoyance. Like the the experience with these different electronic systems must have really lit a fire under you. You know, you had a job for many many years, uh-huh. and you you left it to go back to school. Can you talk a bit about that 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 change point in your life?
0: Yeah. It, it so for a while I had been realizing that or sort of observing that technology is changing the rest of the world, really revolutionizing everything from I mean, most of your mm-hmm. listeners wouldn't know, but back when, you know, bank uh ATMs were developed and started to be used and and a number of things mm-hmm. that were a lot different, uh and, and you could see how that was changing the future. And it occurred yes. to me that it wasn't being done particularly well in, in medicine in general. I, sure, you got fancy new ventilators and things like that. But the whole way everything was connected didn't really happen. And then when they did do it, like mm-hmm. the lab, they didn't do a very good job of it. So um, I, I thought, you know what they need? They really need somebody like me <laughs> that's a clinician, not particularly tech savvy. I'm not. Uh, I am not like a super geek or anything at all. And uh, (laughs) honey, looking at your career, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess that. Oh, yeah. No, I am not. Uh, Anyway, so uh, (laughs) I I, I, what I decided to do is uh, what I think people need is it they need me somebody like me to be able to know both sides so that I could translate between them so I could help the developers develop something understanding how it is that I as the the clinician, I'm going to use it. They need to understand right. what I do for a living uh, better than they do right now. And was
1: that a hard move for you? Or was or did it feel very natural? Oh, it was
0: terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, Go on. The, the reason it was terrible, so I, I had just had my daughter, and I think she was only a few weeks old when I started. And I thought, well, not a problem. Oh, wow. I'll take her with me. And uh, and be- <laughs> maternity leave, not a thing. yeah. yeah I didn't, well. <laughs> But I guess not if you're a student. Yeah, not if you're a student. And so I thought oh, th- th- that didn't matter. I was gonna, not going to go back to work. I was going to go to school, and I was going to take her. And I I didn't quite go full time, but I went, oh. you know, half time. I brought her to all right. my classes right until I graduated. <laughs> and uh-huh. I, Talk about early education. I was <laughs> I I breastfeeding in the back, but it was hilarious because I had a. What? It's a large. Um, the, the first year, and I did it with all the engineers. I think there were 150 guys and maybe five women in the whole uh, auditorium in my in a lot of my first-year classes because engineering and computer science were combined, and, and a lot of the engineers right. had to take the computer science courses anyway. Uh, and so yeah.
1: respect to you for, for breastfeeding in that classroom. You know, I'm a big believer that breastfeeding should be an open and accepted practice. It has so many health benefits, but when you're surrounded by 150 guys, I could understand a woman being nervous about it. So, you know, bravo to you for, for yeah. sticking
0: it out. It wasn't so much that I was nervous as much as it was. I mean, I, because they're all so young uh, by then, great. They, so most of them are about 18, uh, and they're mm. all young, geeky boys. It's <laughs> a bit of an overgeneralization, but so I had to sit, I sat in the same place all the time because I would feed her, and uh, even mm. like discreetly. Uh, and these, <laughs> some boys would sit in front of me and I, I know they were doing it on purpose and they would giggle, right? And, and uh, oh. well, if that's really what I want to work, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, so I, I realized ab- about a year into the four years, not quite four years, that uh, I had made a mistake, a terrible mistake that I did not want to be a developer. Huh. I could do it. I could theoretically oh. solve the problems right. and everything. But they loved right, it. Right, They, they were – that's all they talked about. I'm like, yeah, I know how to fix – you know, anyway. It, it, yeah. it wasn't that I wasn't good at it. It's just I, I didn't love it like they loved it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hear you. And, you know, as someone who comes from an engineering and computer science background myself, I just, I just have to say I – I think there's this, this sense of engineering and computer science as, you know, it's only for the geeks, the hardcore algorithm people and such. Um, but I, I do believe there's a space in that, in that sector for, you know, for women who care about human systems um, to, to make a splash. You know, sometimes it's not about the best algorithm, but about the most usable or useful uh, product that you can mm-hmm. develop. Anyways, that's, I know it's a bit of a tangent from this episode, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't resist, yeah. Um. you know. Coming from where I am, anyways. You're, sorry, let's go back to to you. I'm in this computer science class, so you decided, hey, you know, you're, it's not like you want to go home and write code all night.
0: <laughs> so from there, you moved into the private. Sector? I did well. I no. Next, I went moved into. Uh, I did the first. My first job was uh, doing implementations uh, in hospitals of order systems and C- CPOE documentation, that sort of thing, which I did for a short time. Mm-hmm. And then I I was recruited to work with a consulting company at Deloitte in what's called oh. clinical transformation.
1: Right, right. So it's
0: a lot. It's the, the same thing. How do we use technology to improve the way that we deliver services? So not so much doing the implementation per se, although I did do do that as well. But sort of guiding it more from a change management perspective, making sure that all of those the technologies met the needs better of, of the individuals and, and helped solve the problems of the, the hospitals.
1: Right, so you, so you had the chance to do the, the kind of work that initially piqued your interest in the informatics space, you know, to address some of those gaps that you saw initially. I have the same question for you in this private sector span of your life as I did before, which is namely, you know, again, looking, looking ahead to your work in, in digital health. Are there things that you think that you drew from this period, of pet peeves, opportunities um, that
0: that applied, uh, kicked in later on in your career? Probably the biggest lesson I learned from working, doing system implementations and so on is that I can't tell you the number of times that I would be back talking to a CIO of a hospital, a group of hospitals, and, and they, they would say, you know, we did implement this, whatever five years ago, or the last thing we did, it was really not very successful because it really did not meet our expectations. And I'm like, oh, what were your expectations? Oh, well, we thought it would improve our turnaround for this or whatever it was, right? They, they had a number of different things. And especially in the US, they would do it often for financial reasons. We, we'd wanna reduce our hmm. uh, number of AR days and things like that. And so uh, I'd hmm. say, well, what did you do? A- How did you think that you were gonna get that? And they said, by putting in hmm. a system. Uh, yeah, but you did no actions uh, around, uh, so the doctors have to sign off on charts before that they they can go in and be finalized. And they thought making that electronic would make that faster. But you put in place no policy in which to, to speed that up. It wasn't, they didn't have access to the room where all the time where they had to go to, to do it. Uh, it wasn't familiar right. to them. You did nothing else about it and your system didn't sh- put up reminders to them to say, well, you have some charts that are now 10 days past due or anything like that. Like, you didn't build it to, to, to solve that problem.
1: Yeah, I would say that they mistook the technology for the intervention mm-hmm. when, in fact, uh, they should have approached that problem with, okay, we're going to reduce intake times, we're going to reduce treatment times, we're going to ensure, you know, commodities are available. Exactly. But instead it was, okay, we're going to buy some software and things will get better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously, a system like that, you know, comes with its own own change process, its own effort, its own overhead. Um, so it was, it was doomed from the start. It wasn't going to make things faster, for sure.
0: Right. They didn't even know how it was going to make them faster. It, it was just, well, if we put it in, it'll be easier. <laughs> like, well, no, it won't. It <laughs> automated a bad process. And from an organizational perspective,
1: uh, you know, when people talk about the private sector compared to the NGO um, or the, you know, the charity space, there's a sense, oh, the private sector is a little bit more nimble. They're fast moving. They're driven by the bottom line. Did you see that? Do you feel like there was uh, some ways in which that space that you worked in was able to move faster uh, than subsequently your work in global health? Or is that a myth?
0: Uh, I actually don't think that's completely true on a lot of levels. Uh, and the the one thing that I I found a big difference. The reason when I once I went to global health, I never wanted to go back again to um, uh, the private sector, was because you had to the you had to um, so many things that you had to please, right. What I really liked about very resource-constrained environments is that they don't think they can have everything. (laughs) They (laughs) can laser focus in, and especially with some guidance, like, no, let's pick the thing that we're really going to fix. And then rather than have every single bell and whistle on everything, let's pick the thing that we can really fix. And uh, we'll concentrate our efforts on there because we do not have the resources and everything else to do that. In the private sector, right, you're making individual pick lists for certain surgeons because they like to use this instead of this, and then you got to build whatever, and oh. uh, <laughs> all, all kinds of um, accommodations you make for individuals, which add to the complexity. Oh, getting them to agree on the standardized order sets—my goodness—and oh. <laughs> and just the oh, apology, all of the things that would go around that, and that. Uh, you didn't really have so much in, like, do you really want to be stuck on this for a year, people, or, When and, and waste all this time? There's other reasons things are slow in global health, but that isn't it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was, was going to say, like, I like how you are pulling out that resource constraint and seeing how it can be an asset. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way to leapfrog, it's a way to get ahead. And there's something about seeing that space for opportunity and innovation, which I believe is a mindset that really helps us to strengthen the work that we do. You know, let's build on, let's build our strengths um, and not, and not the weaknesses of where we work as we move forward. Yeah. When did you know it was time to move on from <laughs> McKesson and from Deloitte? <laughs>
0: uh, so uh, I I told you before I kind of went into this all because I had wanted to go and work overseas and, you know, save starving children and all that kind of stuff and save the world. and uh, hmm. I, after I was in nursing and sort of met my husband and got married and sort of all of the things around life got in the way and it would just never seem like a good opportunity. And
1: life's complicated.
0: Yeah. I, I can compl- but I'd always wanted to, it had been the thing I'd always sort of wanted to do is change the world. And um, I had uh it was new year's Eve and, and I was making my new year's resolution. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do something about that this year. So New Year's Day, I huh. applied to go to uh, CUSO, which is uh, volunteer services overseas. Uh, QSO is a Canadian university, students overseas, but I wasn't a student, so there's mm. now uh, volunteer services overseas. I oh. put in an application to, vol- to leave my job at Deloitte to go volunteer. They, had, they accepted short-term applicants. Uh, so you, this might be the the one example of a successful New
1: Year's resolution <laughs> that I've heard. It was, it
0: was <laughs> really. Yeah. And, and uh, wow, yeah. So New Year's Day, put in my application, uh, and I think it was like the third of December or January. They phoned me and invited me to come to a selection meeting or something. I went, and they anyway was accepted that year, and wound up hmm. uh, later on that same year going to Sierra Leone uh, as. Oh, that was fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So when the opportunity came, you were like, "Okay, I'm done. You know, quit your job, get on a plane." Yeah,
0: well, I didn't quit. I took a leave of absence because uh, I wasn't uh. really sure how any of it was going to pan out. And what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got on a plane and and uh, yeah, I have never looked back since then. I I, I loved it. I, it it was funny. I mean, this is just just so typical for anybody who's <laughs> ever done anything in global health, uh, because I have an unusual, um, I guess resume. Uh, they s- saw my skills, but didn't exactly know how to ask for what they wanted me to do, because they have to put in a request. Hmm. And uh, hmm. so they wrote to me and said, um, could you tell us what you could do? <laughs> like, oh, sure. They So, so you know, they said, Here, here's what we think you could work on. So I write up myself, myself a request from them. <laughs> uh, and they had some uh, oh. work that they were going to do on um, a, a strategy around maternal health because they had really high maternal deaths and so on, a strategy around maternal health and how to make some of that electronic, how they were to record things, etc. So great. I go through and I say, here's what I think I can do in this amount of time and so on and so on. I submit that all. They accept that. They, they then make that request of me and I'm on my way. I literally arrive... <laughs> The first day that I, I'm taken there, I'm not. Haven't even had my orientation. I'm brought in to to show them around, and the person who's showing me around says, oh, here, sit in this room for a minute, and you know, introduce yourself to these people. I'll be back in half an hour." And I find out that they're actually doing their national health strategy. All their develop or all of their donors and um, uh, partners had said, "Oh, you can't keep going until you do your national health strategy because it." you won't, don't have an active one anymore. Right. And so, uh, really? and they just
1: they didn't think to mention that as you're setting this whole thing up.
0: Yeah, no, that hadn't been, a th- they hadn't really <laughs> thought of that or they had maybe didn't, they knew it wasn't there, but no one had called them on it yet. So they said, so all of our work is now stopped and now everybody has to do this. So you're, could you work on this with us? And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." <laughs> I don't know anything about that, but whatever. <laughs> oh, there's that
1: that kindergarten flexibility coming in.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So
1: complete 180 on day 1 of the job.
0: Yeah, not doing this, you're going to do something completely different instead. And uh, I didn't even leave that room after that. I like I mean, I I obviously did, but they came back to get me to take <laughs> me to orientation and all that kind of stuff, and I'm like, "Nah, I'm good." <laughs> and <laughs>
1: And that sounds like really foundational work. If you know you happen to be there at the moment where they're setting up the national health strategy, you can be part of those conversations, the formation of it all. Like that sounds quite serendipitous. You know, you didn't you didn't plan for it, but you just you were there at the right time when this was happening.
0: I, completely. And it also, like I understood a, quite a bit about health systems in North America and how they worked and so on. But what that did was it allowed me. I, it was the first year they had done a decentralized plan and uh, I was given responsibility to facilitate this in a district, two districts actually. And Hmm. and, uh, so that meant that you sat there with them and you did these town hall meetings and what are your real problems and how are we going to fix this? And, you know, what's unique about you? Hmm. And and I remember them saying, Oh, we're stocked out. We're stocked out all the time. And I'm like, how can this happen people? (laughs) And uh, they're like, Come with us. And so they walked me through the whole thing. Oh, and then here's where I go to order and you know, you go to the hmm. to the supply depot where you pick up your supplies and they say, Yeah, sorry, we don't have any of that today. And they say, you know, come back another day. And I'm like, Well, what day? <laughs> Is it back order? Can we put our name on a list? No, there's nothing like that. You just show up and then if we have some, we give it to you. But wait a minute. If we've been <laughs> out for a month, <laughs> We still have the same, I don't get priority over somebody who's coming to restock because their levels are low. No, there was no visibility, no, and no attempt to try to do anything like that. So that's when I realized, oh, man. oh we could fix some of these things. <laughs> <laughs> and I under—I I right. got a really good understanding of some of the problems in a, a on the ground from a national health yeah. delivery perspective.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like a great opportunity, not just to set the strategy and run the workshops that you were told to run, but really to dive under the hood. And as, as you've described, trace the stockout mm-hmm. and the root cause exactly. of that stockout and, and why it's happening. Mm-hmm. What, were, what were some of the, the tools and tactics that you thought maybe you, you could have applied from your previous experience that didn't end up quite fitting? I, I'm sure you had to adjust um, a bit as you started working in, in global health. Um, in what ways did you have to change to fit the job? Oh, uh,
0: lots. It, it, and it usually comes down to, you know, in theory, that ought to work. <laughs> I, I, we, we did a big <laughs> implementation in Rwanda, and Rwanda is a wonderful country to work in. Uh, and they're, they're, they
1: hmm.
0: have a lot of, um, everybody's really trying to make it better uh not that they aren't Mm -hmm. in other places but they'll they'll it's one of the only countries that i've worked in when you're told or a health facility is told oh we're going to come by to see you and he'll actually stay like two hours after they should have gone home because we were late and and it wasn't even like a super important meeting or anything but they wanted to make sure that you know they followed through anyway um fantastic we implemented things and I am a very 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 big believer that uh you need to understand what's going on in the ground and plus that's where I come from that's very much my uh my bias anyway and so so we did this whole health enterprise architecture piece that later went on to become open HIE and so on and Hmm. I was most interested in, uh, yeah, how to connect all those parts. But how, do, how does that work on the ground? And, and interestingly, I mean, we had issues always with connectivity and you have issues with electricity and so on. But it, it, it's those little things that are on the ground and not accounted for. Like, I would sit in the clinic with them many, many, many days. And every time we'd go out to see patients, accounting – just three rooms over would come and steal our extension cord because they wanted it <laughs> to plug their fan in. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh, so, no, and literally that was the biggest oh, thing. So then they're like, okay, we got to block this off, and then we'll block the door. What? Then we got to open the door every time we come in to get. And they're like, oh, this isn't working. <laughs>
1: you You think accounting could pay for extension cords? You think they'd find a way?
0: But, but it's just that. All of these things are rare anyway, relatively rare. It, they could have. Mm-hmm. It's just it was a bit easier for them to keep stealing ours when they didn't think. And and those are the things that make it unsuccessful, right? It's on the ground and you think, oh, let's just buy a bunch of extension cords. <laughs> but then it would be something else. It would be the next thing, right? It would be now right. uh, somebody is, right, right. used up all your data bundle streaming music or something that, that kind of yeah thing.
1: it's a culture of change the movement towards change rather than trying to to hide and to steal from each other that's that's happening <laughs> that's what you see
0: yeah so so i think a lot of things wound up and, and not just in rwanda in many places try to make technology solutions that were not necessarily the best way to solve some of their problems or things we just thought might work and for whatever reason change is hard and people for sure don't always keep doing it if you don't if they don't see a purpose in it, they don't see that you know they're they're part of that bigger solution
1: right and speaking of of change, I'd love to hear you talk about how you were able to push for change either um through the Rwanda enterprise architecture um or through your work in the better immunization data. Can you talk a bit about how you how you got people to change the habits that they were so set in when you mm. moved on to that work?
0: I'll, I'll give you a really good example that I use when people had said to me early on when, in the bid initiative when we were first starting, what does success look like? What, what, how would we know we're successful at the end of this? And I had been asked uh, to do an evaluation in Bandaachi, um, or actually Alavachi province, after the tsunami, mm-hmm. uh, many aid organizations pledged lots of money to help rebuild. And one of the things that they did, GIZ at that time uh, had, they divided up, everybody divided up what they were gonna help with and and they had um, done health information systems. And and they said, not just for the city or for uh, for Bandach, but for the whole province. I was asked to go and do the evaluation, more or less to help them determine whether or not the German government got their money's worth. So great. They said, you have to come to this one uh, facility that we have. They'd actually done quite a lot. They had put in systems so that all of their are, there are hospitals there or their clinics there are more like small hospitals. And they might have hmm. 10 consultation rooms running at a time, not like just one one clinician. They had run this one. And what what they were doing was the... They would enter all of the patients they saw, what sort of the diagnosis was. And so it was very, very electronic for the the situation. And this was in one of the uh, Mm. poorest places that that was difficult to access, so and so on. Anyway, what they did at the end of every day, and more so at the end of every week, is that they would sit there for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and look at the information for the day. Huh, look at that. We have seen a great number more... We saw quite a few yesterday, but we even see more cases of diarrhea today. But if you have ten different clinicians, you're not all going to see. They would look at the trends in the data, and say, "Oh, it's concerning." And look at this; they came from these two different uh, areas, these two villages. So what we're going to do is tomorrow, you and you are going to go to that village, and you're going to make sure that you talk to them about oral rehydration salts and hand washing, and so on and so on, uh, because we we see that this is about to become a problem. And then we're it kept going a couple days and they would say, okay, we've still been seeing more of them. So now instead of letting them mix in with everybody else in our waiting room, we're going to have a special waiting room outside for them to to wait so that we aren't sort of cross-contaminating. They were able to make plans of mm-hmm. things that were perfectly within their ability to do to change, use that data to change the way that they delivered their services Nice at a very local level. right? And that to me was a perfect example of success. They had no more money. In fact, they had fewer resources than everybody else in a more difficult place, and they performed better than almost anybody.
1: Huh. Nice. That's awesome. And it's great to see that in in practice. Last question um, before we jump to the rapid fire, Liz, is if you have any advice, you know, maybe looking back to uh, Liz of 30 years ago um, or other young professionals out there, um, do you have any other advice um, that you would give to those that are looking to change the world? Um and maybe trying to figure out how to do it.
0: Yeah, you got to start somewhere, and so uh, <clears throat> a lot of times it, it, the whole thing looks overwhelming. And it just, I mean, reach out, talk to people, see if there's opportunities to become involved with things. Uh, yeah, I I think almost every single uh, opportunity. I I don't hardly think I ever have rep- applied for a. A, a job—it was either m- made for me, or I was recruited to it, or I—it was something that I hmm. created on my own. Hey, you guys don't have a nice. department for this. I think I—I <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give that get that started for you. And so, uh, sometimes it's—it's it's tempting to think of this as all just too overwhelming and uh, not tempting. I guess it's—it—it's it, it's, it's overwhelming. And pick—pick pick something and see, okay, I can't fix it all, but I can start here. I can fix this one little thing, or I can offer to help with this, or whatever that happens to be. So if you want to change the world, you got to start doing something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a big thing far away, but all of these things all tie together.
1: That makes sense. Thank you so much, Liz. Um, With the final 10 minutes or so that we have, I just wanted to run through the rapid fire questions. With that, let's dive in. Um, the first question for you, Liz, is whether you have any requests for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast.
0: I had a I had a prepared answer for this, but I think I'm going to change it right now. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's do it. <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, so one other thing I wanted to talk or to touch on briefly, and I think this is really definitely to the to the donors and, and uh, some of the policymakers, is that sometimes you start doing something heading down a path and you realize sort of early on that you've made a mistake, that this is probably not gonna work as we anticipated it, and you want to pivot on that. And what what happens all too often is that they said to say well no we just gave you a million dollars to do this (laughs) and uh you say yeah but you're not going to get your money's worth it and it's not i'm asking for more i'm saying we should do something different or whatever that this we have run into this problem then we it's not fixable and and so uh Hmm. if we did it you're just going to find that out in three years but we have an opportunity to change some things now we realize and and to be able to be more nimble to be able to do that to to when, when things uh, become apparent that there's a, a, a fundamental problem in, in some assumptions that you made about uh, any number of things, that to be able to, p- to pivot on that, to be able to say, okay, well, what else could we do or what, how might we need to change this and so on to, to move forward versus, nope, this was the project plan and this is how we're going.
1: Next question for you, Liz, um, is if there's a technology platform um, that you've enjoyed that you might recommend uh, that you have not been involved in the building of?
0: Uh, yeah. So as far as a uh, tech platform in this area, I think obviously one of the, the biggest ones in the developing world context is DHS-2. Just
1: a quick interjection for folks who might not have listened to all of our episodes. Can you just say a few sentences on what DHS-2 is?
0: Sure. It's a district health information system. It uh, So a lot of the statistics and that they collect around Everything from the number of antigens that are given to whatever the country decides that they're going to collect to make decisions on about how to deliver their services. And it, it is not necessarily, I think they, they did a excellent, excellent job of um, providing a simple tool that countries needed and uh, were looking for. But what they did an even better job of is creating local support. They have trained so many people and everything that there is a little cottage industry of um, local consultants and, and uh, whatnot who are really capable of, uh, you know, making changes to the implementations, adding new features and so on. Uh, and uh, that has led to a great deal of success. They, the countries feel they own it. And that they can, um, you know, support it themselves. They don't have to be calling Ozzo or somebody else all the time. They, and that has really helped improve, I think, the uptake and everything else about it.
1: Fantastic. And it's great to hear that particular aspect of of what it is about DHIS2 that, that you love and that you've appreciated in your work with it. Next question for you is whether there's any common implementation mistakes uh, that you've seen in your career and perhaps a corresponding fix.
0: Uh, I think part of it would be uh what I had mentioned before about uh, n- n- not knowing what problem they're trying to solve uh, mm. very, very specifically, like say essentially, we're going to implement this we're going to implement this um community health worker application because we realize that we don't have enough uh, space in our, we, we want to extend our, our health service delivery to them and, and make sure that they feel supported uh, to, so that they can deliver better service in the field, even if they're not really trained. So we're doing it, you know, for that purpose to, versus just saying, oh, we're going to have a community health worker application. Um <laughs> Right. You need to know exactly what problem you're trying to solve. What are you doing with that? And are you giving them advice or are you collecting information back from them or and why? Uh, so understanding exactly. what problem you're fixing.
1: Exactly. Is there a trend in this industry to watch
0: out for in the next few years? I think one of the bigger challenges that I see and it's it's more of a caution I think. Um, there is a tendency towards the latest and greatest as far as platforms and developing languages, programming languages, and and all of that sort of thing. And what winds up happening is it becomes extremely difficult to support because uh, if you're trying to get local um, people out of the universities that are, you know, in these various countries, anybody with any kind of technology background gets snapped up really quickly ministries can't usually afford to to keep them they get wooed away by Mm. private industry and so on and and the the more you have the latest and greatest the less books on access databases that they can you know for dummies that they can download (laughs) right (laughs) you do wind up making it sort of so that they are always going to need external help. And so mm. be careful about the ability to support that later.
1: That makes a lot of sense. You want it to, to last. This isn't a, mm-hmm. a one-off. These are systems that we want to live Thank you so much, Liz, for your time. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate walking through the, the story of your life. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. Thanks. Thanks to everyone who made it this far. I know it was a bit of a longer episode than usual, but I really enjoyed hearing her stories from why people hide extension cords in Rwanda to the most common mistakes that CIOs make when undertaking digital transformation. If you like what you heard, You can get more information on our website at aidevolved.com. And if you want me to make shorter episodes in future, just send me a note on Twitter at Rowena Luke. I'll catch you next time. Bye.